On today's episode of Noon, I'm excited to introduce you to my longtime friend Robin. Her journey spans diverse fields, from extensive travel across North America resulting in a captivating book, to her significant roles in the medical sector, transitioning now to the dynamic world of film production. Join us for an engaging conversation as Robin shares her unique experiences, insights from her time in healthcare, and the inspiring story behind her evolution into the film industry. Let's get started. All right, Robin, thank you so much for joining us on the Noon Podcast today. Can you go ahead and give me an introduction of yourself? Sure. So my name is Robin Beal. I grew up in southeastern New Mexico, which is where I started in emergency services right after I graduated from high school. I spent 13 years in a variety of positions. I worked as an EMT basic, as a paramedic. I worked as a firefighter, as a dispatcher, um, and I've worked in a bunch of different places around the country and then decided to go indoors for a while. So I went back to school and became a physician assistant and uh, worked for seven years in cardiology and cardiothoracic surgery. And then uh, got tired of all of it and walked away. And now I am an author of a book and I work in film. I work as a film producer and writer for nonfiction documentaries. That's really, you've, you've been all over the board. That is <laughs> true. That's true. Uh, yeah. where, where to even start with that? Um, <laughs> uh, no, that's really awesome. I think it's really cool. Some of the opportunities that medicine gives us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I'm just kind of assuming that you, you got that opportunity through the medical field. But I did read a little bit on your, uh, when I was reading on your book a little bit, uh, that you did some time in Alaska. That's right. Um, yeah, I, different jobs, both in the field and in the hospital, have given me opportunities to go some interesting places. Um, I actually lived in New York City for a while and worked in one of the big hospitals there. Um, I trained in Maine. Um, I went to grad school in Maine. Um, and as part of grad school, I got to go on rotations to different places. You go a different place every six weeks um, on your medical rotations. And so I set up three of those in Alaska. So I got to train in Alaska um, at the Native Medical Center there, which was amazing. It's the, the trauma center for the entire state of Alaska for anybody wow. who's one sixteenth or greater um, indigenous. So um, they get folks from really everywhere, almost down to Seattle, all the way up to Barrow and out the Aleutian Islands come to this one hospital in Anchorage. So instead of the golden hour there, they talk about the golden day because it can take oh, oh my goodness. a day to get somebody <laughs> to the hospital. You know? um, but because smokes. of that, you got to see amazing things and learn amazing things that you would never um, pick up in a, in a regional hospital You know, on in the lower 48. Um, I also had the opportunity to work in Greenland for a little while. I went as the set medic for a television show, a sort of docuality television show that was filming there. Um, that was my first taste of television, actually. But I was the only medical provider for a casting crew of 40 people living in three season tents out on an, a, an uninhabited island in the fjord system of Greenland. It was incredible. So yeah, things like this can give you the opportunity to do some really exciting things and go exciting places if you look for those and if you make an excuse to go, you know? Sure. Yeah, you give yourself the time and the reason to go and you can just jump on it. So yeah. of all the things that you've done, uh, medical-related, which what's been your favorite position? Oh, gosh. Um, that's hard to say. I mean, they all have different things that make them fun and great and interesting and things that make them terrible. So, you know, it was very exciting to work in New York doing some of the you know, most cutting edge cardiology care with some of the best best doctors in the country. But it was also, you know, somewhat impersonal. I was one of 50 physician assistants who just worked in interventional cardiology. And we had like, you know, 60 physicians that worked there. And 
So you didn't get the kind of, you didn't really get to know people as well as you do in a smaller community. I think if I had to look back at the most fun I've ever had, it would probably be my original days in Southern New Mexico as a volunteer, volunteer firefighter, EMT. I think I was an EMT first responder first, even before I was the EMT basic. You know, it, was, it, it sounds old to say, but it was like the good old days, you know? Yeah. Like, simple, nobody had a cell phone. There were no, it was just, um, it was a, a time of, of camaraderie that I have yet to find since. Right, and that's something that I kind of talked about a little bit on the shows. I feel like that camaraderie has kind of been lost, right? Because we went from a very small community of EMS people to it's getting larger. People are getting pushed through a lot faster. They're holding more classes every year. So Mm -hmm. I think that camaraderie is just kind of, it's not as good as it used to be. Well, and it's different. I mean, um, one of the things that I talk about in um, in my book and that in the final um, uh, epilogue is that it's different for firefighters than it is for paramedics. It's different for paramedics than it is for cops. It's different for dispatchers than it is for cops. And it's worst for the tow truck drivers. So, for example, in a firehouse, you typically have a crew of three to five people that are assigned to a particular engine or ladder company. Sometimes you have a big house where you've got a couple of engines, an ambulance, a battalion chief, that kind of thing, where maybe there's, you know, 12 or or 15 people sitting down to dinner every night and and you've got three shifts of that larger crew. And when you have a stressful call or a bad call or, or something that has bothered you, you have all the other people in the truck for dispatchers. It's kind of the same thing, um, depending on how big the dispatch center is. A lot of places Mm -hmm. have, single dispatchers on at a time. The um, Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting, actually, there was one dispatcher on fielding all of the 911 calls that were related. Wow. Um, whereas, you know, I've worked in a larger city in Arizona where you had 25 dispatchers on at a time. And so when things went awry there or things were challenging there, you had your your colleagues to talk to. On the ambulance, it's a little bit less, uh, you have less of a, a clan around you, less of a group around you, a tribe because there's only two of you. And you may work with a different partner every time. Mm-hmm. You may have uh, the same partner over and over. If you have a partner that you work well with and that you spent you spend a lot of ships with, you can have that kind of relationship with each other where you can debrief, you can talk about things, you can make things better, you can talk about what's wrong, what's right, that kind of thing, in addition to talking about everything else that's going on in your life. You know, For police officers, they're very often alone. And especially in rural places like in New Mexico, where I've worked, or in New Hampshire, where I live now, there may be one police officer on for the entire town, and their next backup might be either a sheriff or a state police officer who's coming from 30, 40, 60 minutes away. So whereas there's a shift change uh, on the ambulance, there's a shift change in the dispatch center, there's usually a shift change in a, in a, a staffed firehouse, um, cops don't necessarily get a shift change. They don't necessarily get to talk to each other. So one may go off duty by signing off on the radio as the other one comes on and may take their cruiser home at night and they don't have anybody to, to debrief with or, or talk about, you know, the the more tense parts of the day. And then I bring up the tow truck drivers because tow truck drivers do a lot of things with us. I mean, they're on every accident scene. They, they see a lot of terrible things with us and yet they have no uniform, no badge, no recognition, no union. Um, and nobody else in the cab with them to talk about the things that they've seen. And if you think about the things that they're present for, uh, you know, if there's a, a big MVA and there has to be a death investigation, they have to sit there 
all night or all day until the ME comes and takes the body in and uh, things are resolved. So they sit there all night looking at the same stuff that we are or that the cops are. It's not part of their training. It's not part of their compensation. There's no support system for them. And there are other folks like that, like um, emergency veterinarians. Several times I've, I've needed an emergency vet and when you need one, you need one right now and there's nothing else that will do, you know. Um, but they don't necessarily have anybody to talk about that stuff with either, you know, that not all vets do emergency care. So they wouldn't know what it's like to come to a house fire and uh, help you intubate a dog and, you know, try to treat their burns. They wouldn't know what it's like to be at a water rescue where there are horses inside a trailer that's, you know, gotten washed into the into the river during a, a you know, a monsoon. If they if you don't have that kind of background, you you wouldn't know what anybody's talking about. And so I think what's important and what's important with what you're doing and what's part of the reason why I wrote the book is that when we get the most down or the most scared or the most despondent or desperate is when we feel like we're alone. And it's really easy to feel alone when you're the only one in the cruiser, you're the only one in the tow truck, or you come home alone at night and you're in your bed with only your thoughts in your head. Um, so I think people being able to talk about the way they feel, having a um, an outlet and having people to understand is crucial to survive. I agree 100%. And you, you brought up a really good point about, you know, the tow truck drivers, because it's not even something that we think about, you know, right. I've talked about when we had COVID, the essential workers versus the non-essential workers. And I think it was a really big wake up call to see how much fast food workers really are necessary right? store workers, truck drivers. Yeah, yes, exactly. When we're afraid to go anywhere or talk to anybody, McDonald's is always open, right? You and know? in a lot of places, there were a lot of people, you know, working for, um, you know, uh, ride share companies or food delivery companies. And they're, you know, some of the least protected, uh, least well paid, uh, least recognized workers in the entire workforce in the United States. And they were, you know, putting themselves at just as much risk as the people on the fire trucks and the ambulances. Yeah, if not more so, because now the demand is higher, right? There's still, we're not getting our shipments in, you know, on the either side of the United States. And we're having to rely on those truck drivers that yeah. did stay and kept working. And yeah, that was, I hope that it was as eye-opening for everybody as it was for me. I hope so too. Um, let's talk about your book a little bit. I see it in the background there. So this is called Price Per Barrel, The Human Cost of Extraction. And I started out without the intention to write a book. So I started writing um, informally probably 15 or 20 years ago, actually while I was on the job, while I was on the fire department. And I'd be on shift or, you know, working an overnight in the dispatch center or something and would have a few moments to write. And I just started writing little vignettes, little thoughts that had been my, in my head about uh, particular calls or people or whatever. Um, and then it became sort of um, therapeutic for me. So I kept doing it. And after a while, I began to share some of my writing with other people, which I was really, really hesitant to do in the beginning because I was like, ah, this is my baby. You know, what if they, what if they put me down for it or they don't like it or whatever, you know, I'm still new right. in the fire department. Who am I? to be writing a book, you know, or to be writing anything. But what I realized when I started sharing it with close people was that they found it valuable. They found it useful because I was putting into words things that were in their own mind because we have universal experiences. Anybody who's who's put on that uniform and 
run code three down the street. We've all shared the same kinds of experiences. It's just that the weather is different wherever we're working. Yeah. Everything else is pretty much the same, you know? And so I was traveling. I was working as a physician assistant and I was, I'm addicted to road trips. I love a good road trip. Um, I've driven across the continent, uh, I think 15 times now. I've seen every state, every province in Canada. I love a good road trip. Um, and so I was on a road trip in Canada and I got snowed in in Labrador and couldn't get the ferry back to where I was living. So oh, I got no. snowed in and um, ended up having a few more days on the road than I had planned. And I caught uh, a radio broadcast on Canadian broadcasting that was about this iron mining town in the very, very northern part of Quebec. And I was so curious about it because it wasn't on the road system. You had to fly in and fly out. And um, it's been there since 1969 or so. And I was so curious about, you know, do they have a hospital there? Do they have a fire department? Do people have babies there? Do people have heart attacks there? And they didn't talk about any of that in this program. It was more about the boom and bust of iron and the changing population in this boom town. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to go find out. I want to find out what it's like there from the perspective of a first responder. And so five short years later, I was able to start a road trip around the country that was the writing of this book. And I actually didn't get up to that part of Quebec like I had planned. And you have to read chapter two to find out why. But I started with the idea of writing a series of journal articles for Gems or Firehouse or something like that. And then the more places I went, the more people I talked to, the bigger the story became. And the more I was like, wow, there's, there's really, um, there's a lot to be said here. And I think that this could turn into a book. And it's, um, it's both memoir and travelogue, um, but it's also nonfiction, a nonfiction look at boom towns in North America. Um, but the trip itself, the, the six months I spent living in my truck, driving 26,000 miles around the country, also became a great story in and of itself. What a cool experience. Six months living in your truck. How was that? At times it was really wonderful and at times it was really awful. It depended on how much money I had. Yeah. <laughs> but it, um, I had, uh, I couldn't take a leave of absence for that long. So I had left my job and I had, you know, saved up money. I had done a little um, crowdfunding campaign, things like that. And basically I cashed in my retirement, um, which looking back on, I'm not sure I would do again, but I'm also not sure I wouldn't because I wouldn't change having that experience for the world. And it started off, <laughs> other than the hitch of not being able to get into Canada, um, it started off well. It was I, I left on Thanksgiving Day from the state of Maine, headed west um, toward, roughly toward North Dakota and Seattle. And just the process of driving across the northernmost part of the United States in the winter was extremely challenging. Um, and uh, other parts of it were great once I got to um, you know, Washington State and Oregon after having been in 40 below temperatures and blizzards in the Dakotas. It was like, oh my gosh, it feels like summer out here, you know. Um, and I got to catch up with friends. I got to meet some incredible first responders, incredible people in uniform all over the country. So were you driving and stopping like at random departments and just introducing yourself or how, how were you going about doing that? That's a great question. So some of it I had planned. I had certain places that I wanted to go, but I also knew that um, that my greatest asset is being able to talk to anybody. Um, like I can walk in anywhere and start talking to somebody and it, it doesn't bother me. Other people, you know, are hesitant to approach officials or approach strangers, something like that. So I had a rough idea where I was going, but then I really let the conversations with 
other people. Maybe it was a random person at a restaurant where I was having dinner that had an idea about where I could go, or it might be someone from one department, you know, pulled in somebody from another department or, you know, sent a recommendation ahead, you know, for the next, you know, 200 miles ahead of where I was going, that kind of thing. Um, but basically I used the universal currency and anytime I walked into a firehouse or an ambulance bay, I brought ice cream. <laughs> that is the universal currency. Always for open sure. store. It works in Canada as well as it works in the United States. <laughs> That's so funny. That sounds like it was so much fun. I bet you just had a blast and you, you probably met some crazy characters. I did. And there were some really unexpected things. Like I went to Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, which is where Punxsutawney Phil lives. Mm -hmm. That's the ground they hold up on mm -hmm. Groundhog Day. And it's a tiny little town. At the time, it was a population of 4,000 people, but more than 40,000 people come into town for that weekend. So they have to bring in the National Guard. They bring in helicopters and ambulances and, uh, you know, state cops and, and people from all over the place to try and keep things safe. And what I didn't realize is that there are more than one Punxsutawney Phil. There's like six Punxsutawneys Phil, and they're all groundhogs that live in the library of the town. The so library. the town hall, the library. So the, the center, it's tiny. The center of town has the town hall, the police station, the fire station, the ambulance bay, and the library. And in the children's section of the library, there's a big, uh, like little, like little zoo enclosure, and there's six different groundhogs in there. And they take two of them up to Gobbler's Knob, which is where they do the ceremony. They take two of them on the day of in case one of them dies on the way up there. <laughs> Redundancy, you know, they've got a backup. To have a backup. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know. I found out weird things like that. Who would have ever known? That you know? is probably the best thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's one to top that. I went to uh, Johnson Space Center and I um, spoke with the physicians that care for the astronauts and care for their families as well. And I got to go into mission control and all of that. It was incredible. Um, and the plan was for me to be able to talk to some of the astronauts that were on the space station at the time, but they were sleeping at the time. So it was daytime at, at the space center. Um, outside of Houston, but uh, they have, because the, the space station circles the earth every hour and a half, every 90 minutes. So the sun is either coming up or going down every 45 minutes. That's nuts. Yeah. So they have specific hours during which they sleep. And it's actually the physicians that work in mission control that control their sleep schedule. And you cannot wake them up during their sleep schedule unless it's like you know, a family emergency or something like that. So I didn't get to talk to them, but we we talked a lot. This, this is all in the book, but the physician and I talked about fluids on the space station because fluids are a big deal in the absence of gravity. And so I asked about women astronauts and what they do with menstruation and things like that, sure. you know, because there's fluid that you got to deal with, right? Yes. And it turns out most women elect to go on uh, a continuous hormone therapy so that they don't menstruate while they were up there. But then, you know, we had already covered all of this very personal ground about urine and feces and menstrual fluid in space. <laughs> and so I said, without even thinking about it, standing in mission control, I said, what happens if an astronaut ejaculates on the space station? <laughs> and it was out of my mouth before I even knew what I was asking. <laughs> and the physician just looked at me and said, I don't know. And I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you can't lie. You know that they've gone up there and tried it. <laughs> oh, of course. Of course somebody's tried it. They just never talk about yes. it. Yes. You know? <laughs> it, they're men. I mean, come on. <laughs> Were you 
I could be so wrong on this, but talking about that, were you the one that told me the story about the guy that had passed away during coitus? On Viagra? <laughs> and ejaculated to <laughs> defibrillated him? <laughs> so I worked in a retirement community in Arizona for a while where the, um, the minimum age to live there was 55. And that was like, uh, a pediatric patient to us was a 55 year old patient, you know, <laughs> and this was right around the time that Viagra was hitting the market. So there's two great stories here. The first is that, um, they, they hadn't quite identified yet exactly how risky it is to be on nitrates and take Viagra. So we had a lot of Viagra codes mm. in that time, either because people dropped their blood pressure because they were already on nitrates, especially long acting nitrates, or because they had you know, cardiac arrhythmias or had EMIs because they had not had sex in years and years and were not fit for it, you know? <laughs> um, so in this particular story, uh, the, it seemed like a normal code, but the wife was kind of like, you know, she she looked a little differently distressed than most wives whose husbands have just coded look, you know? And so he was naked and uh, he was in V-fib and we defibrillated him and he ejaculated and it went across the arm of the guy who was bagging the patient. At the time. <laughs> <laughs> he never lived that one down either. Oh, I'm but, sure. Um, the other thing that was really interesting that happened, and this is something that, like, this shows my age as a medic, because you may not ever see this anymore, but at the time, everybody was on digitalis. Mm -hmm. That was the only thing that we had for antiarrhythmics, and everybody had AFib, you know, so everybody was on digitalis. And... When Viagra came out and all these, you know, old dudes were interested in having sex again, their wives were not. They were decidedly not interested in having sex. <laughs> so they would get together in their knitting circles or whatever and talk about how to make themselves more amorous. So because of Viagra and the dudes wanted to have sex with their wives, the wives wanted to feel more randy. So they started taking foxgloves with their digitalis, not realizing that they were the same compound. And we had a rash of ditch overdoses. Yeah. And you'd probably never see that today because nobody uses not digitalis. Not very often, yeah. Unless it's like a really old school cardiologist with a really difficult patient with a difficult arrhythmia that's like, that's the only thing that works, but it's too toxic. You know, that's why yeah. we don't use it anymore. But all of a sudden we had all these little old ladies who were just out of their mind with digitalis toxicity. <laughs> And it was all because of Viagra. That's nuts. That's, <laughs> uh, you can't make this shit up, you know? <laughs> nope. That's funny. So do you have plans for another book? I do. So um, the other, the next book that I have is, is in progress right now. And it's called Insensible Loss, Why Doctors Quit. And it's about why I left healthcare and medicine and why a lot of doctors, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners do. And it takes a look at how our whole healthcare system is set up from the way we select doctors for training, the way we train doctors, the way we hire them, the way we re reimburse them, all of that, and looks at what's wrong and how we could make it right. Um, there's a huge, even before the pandemic, burnout among healthcare providers in the hospital, just like folks in the field, was skyrocketing. And I think what hurts physicians and uh, PAs and MPs significantly is that you're not allowed to doctor anymore. You know, you're, everything is tied to the electronic medical record. Everything is uh, decided by the third party payers, things like that. You, you don't have the permission to get to know your patient and have an earnest conversation with them about what you think is 
is best and what is right without worrying about ordering the right tests that our litigious society has told us that we need to order. And so much of your day now is spent not actually doing medicine, not actually seeing patients, but documenting. And it's the same for EMS too. I mean, the call may take 20 minutes, but the paperwork might take it out, you know, depending on the type of call. Um, and that doesn't get any better when you go into the hospital, it gets worse. So yeah. even before the pandemic, people were really demoralized by what it means to practice medicine anymore. And the pandemic has only made that worse. Um, there's a shortage of people because some people died. Some people got sick and could never return. Some people gave everything that they could possibly give in the first couple of years and their, their well is empty. So they're gone. Um, people are moving from bedside medicine into academia, into leadership, going to work for drug companies and device manufacturers, going to work for what I consider the devil, which is the insurance companies. <laughs> so um, this book looks at all the things that all the reasons why doctors quit, what they do after, and how we could change things to retain more providers. Okay, that's going to be a really interesting perspective. So do you mind sharing why you ultimately left? Well, I mean, there's two, there's two different times in my life that I've switched careers. One was going from working in the field, having been a paramedic, having been a dispatcher, having been a firefighter, to working in the hospital, um, you know, going back to school, getting my pre-med course is done, getting my master's degree and going to work as a physician assistant. Um, this is in the book too, but we've all seen people in our careers who stay too long in whatever job it is. They either don't promote and they sort of just become apathetic about everything. They don't go from being an EMT basic to being a, an EMT paramedic. And so they don't get that intellectual stimulus and that added level of responsibility and that bigger toolbox so the job gets boring for them. We've seen we've all seen nurses who've stayed too long in the ER and should have gone somewhere else. We've all mm -hmm. seen medical assistants who stayed in pediatrics for too long and should have gone somewhere else, you know. And the beauty of uh, of being a paramedic, of being a nurse or being a physician assistant is that you can go different places. There's lots of different things you can do as a paramedic. You can fly, you can work in a hospital ER, you can work on a cruise ship. You can work in um, the Yukon in the summertime. You can work in Yellowstone. You know, there's different things that you can do. Being a nurse, you can go from the ER to the OR. You can go from, you know, geriatrics to pediatrics. You can do home nursing. There's all sorts of different things that you can do. Being a physician assistant is the same kind of thing in that it's a generalist education. So you can work in cardiology like I did, or you can work in orthopedics, or you can work in... Um, OBGYN, God forbid. Bless the people who do OBGYN. I have no business doing it. No, I like to work for you yes. guys. <laughs> but um, you can move around. Um, it's harder for nurse practitioners to do that because you follow a certain track that's typically sort of divided between adult and, and pediatric medicine. And it's almost impossible for doctors to change their career path once they're in it, especially if they've gone as far as a fellowship. It's almost impossible for them to do something else without having, without having to go back through another residency and fellowship. And by that time, you're already 45 years old and half a million dollars in debt and wants to do that. So the two times that I've left, um, I left field medicine. Um, I had promised a chief of mine when I left that when I stopped wanting to get out of the truck on calls, I would do something else. So I was working in a place where we had a lot of staff. We had, um, it was a big system. There were lots of units available all the time. 
and all of our trucks had either four or five people on them. And there was one particular engineer um, who was uh, a basic. He never, you know, went on to get a paramedic or an intermediate. And he, especially at night, he would not get out of the truck. He would just sit in the truck while the rest of us ran the call. Um, and I found that really abhorrent because that's not at all what you signed up for. It's not what you've promised the public you're going to do. That's not what you're getting paid for. And so when I left that department, I had a conversation with the chief and said, on the day that I don't want to get out of the truck anymore because I'm so tired of it, I'll leave. I'll go do something else. And it finally got to that point. And I was actually working in rural New Hampshire as a paramedic in a pretty rural place that also had a pretty high volume of calls and a lot of trauma. There was a big interstate that ran through there um, and a large moose population and things like that. And it was an early morning. Um, we had just come on, on shift and got dispatched to a, a motor vehicle accident during a blizzard. And it was on a basically on a mountain slope. And there was a car off to the side. I was in the car with the patient. My partner was trying to get the gurney um, and, a, and a backboard and try to figure out how the two of us were going to get him out of the car alone because all the units were dispatched to other things. So we had no scene safety. We didn't have a police officer there. We didn't have a fire truck to block a scene. Jeez. And we're on this mountain slope and a semi-truck, fully loaded semi-truck, lost control coming down the hill and was headed right for us. Oof. And I was there with the patient and I was looking at the truck and I saw it, it was close enough for me to read the words Freightliner across the front. And then I was like, okay, this is in it. This is the day that I'm going to die. It's going to happen right here. And he was able to regain control and swerve just before he hit us. And it sprayed us with, you know, snow and road grime and everything else. And I was like, okay, that's it. <laughs> this is the day. This is the day that I'm going to go do something else, you know. Um, the second time that I made a transition uh, when I left medicine altogether was much harder. I struggled for a long time to find a job as a PA that I could tolerate. I moved a bunch of times. I worked in a bunch of different hospitals, different clinics, different kinds of, um, of PA work and could never find anything that didn't just absolutely drive me crazy. <laughs> and so finally, I um, I was really struggling in the last job that I had and I asked for help from the administration and all sorts of things and it just became clear that it was never going to get better. And so I did the one thing that I've never done before, which was quit without notice. So I came in on um, a Friday afternoon and I dropped off my letter of resignation, you know, effective immediately and went to the barber shop, grabbed a cigar out of the humidor that they had and sat down in my barber's chair and said, shave it off. And I shaved my head completely and bought a bottle of champagne, took my cigar home and sat on the, on the porch and just cried and cried and cried and cried. And I got a call from the CEO a little while later the CEO of the hospital. And he told me that he was going to keep my letter of resignation in his desk over the weekend and that he wanted to see me on Monday in the afternoon. And if I still wanted to resign, he would honor that. And if I didn't want to resign, he would tear it up and hand it back to me like it never happened. And so Monday morning, I walked in in a dress and high heels and makeup with a completely bald head. <laughs> and he looked at me and said, well, I guess you're not coming back. And that was it. And I've never gone back to medicine since then. And I don't regret it for a second. No, it doesn't seem like it. So why do you think that you were struggling so hard with with the PA jobs? Well, it's it's the same thing that, that makes people struggle at EMS as well. There's there's different factors. The first thing is that we're always understaffed. 
everything is about profit now, um, especially if you work for a for-profit system. Um, and those have their place. I'm not putting those down. It's just a different, um, it's a different set of priorities. And so we're always short-staffed to the point that, you know, a lot of us know that if we're sick and we call out sick, somebody else is just going to have to take our burden, you know, um, and that's a difficult place to be in. But one of the things that that I noticed universally among the fire service, EMS, the dispatch center, in the hospital, wherever it was, the hardest thing often isn't the calls. It isn't necessarily the patients and the things that you see and do. The things that are the most difficult are the human relationships we have with each other. So often the struggles in the firehouse are worse than the struggles out on the scene. And the, the difference is every single call comes to an end. Every card gets closed. But your relationships with the people that you're spending a third of your life with, that you're, that you're sleeping in the same place with, which is an incredibly vulnerable space to be in, the people that you're depending on, you know, to have your back both in the street and in the, in the admin office when you get in trouble, whatever it is, it's those human relationships that are the most challenging thing. And that's true of being a physician assistant as well, except you lose the dinner table conversation. You lose the commonality of the uniform that you share across the nation. You don't have that ability to debrief. You don't even have maybe an office or even a doctor's lounge or something where you can relax and talk with your colleagues about your shared experiences. And the difficulties that we have in EMS with our supervisors, our chiefs, our admin office, it's the same thing in the hospital as well, except there's a higher likelihood of getting sued if you screw something. <laughs> and you've, you've probably put a lot of sweat equity into your training and gotten into a lot of debt. I mean, most physician assistants and nurse practitioners now are coming out of PA school or NP school with between a quarter of a million and a half a million dollars worth of debt. Physicians are coming out with between, and dentists and veterinarians are coming out with between half a million dollars and a million dollars worth of debt. And as a physician or a vet, you or a dentist, you really don't start making money and, and getting into your practice until your mid thirties, sometimes even later. And so you've spent your entire, uh, you know, high school education, college education, um, med school, internship, residency, fellowship, all of that toward this one goal. And then when you get into it, you realize it's the same bullshit that happens everywhere else. You know, it's the same thing that happens in the firehouse, in the uh, the police station in the dispatch center, it's the same fuck fuck games. It's the same, you know, immaturity. It's just people have different toys to play with, you know? And you lose some of the fun of like ripping up a car is fun. Extricating somebody out of a car, especially when it goes well and they're not really, really sick, you just can't get them out. Mm -hmm. Wicked fun, right? It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to fight fire especially when it goes well and it goes out when you try to put it out, you know, those <laughs> things are a lot of fun. Um, staying in the, uh, in the hospital until 10 o'clock at night, writing your notes, is not fun. No, it's not. So you lose some of that camaraderie that you have built into the uniform and then you lose some of the fun and the pressures are even higher. So there's a lot of things that, um, that we can fix, but it's going to take a generational shift to make those happen. And I just couldn't wait around for that long. I knew if I stayed that I would kill myself. So I actually, uh, my parents had come to visit me and we were sitting at my favorite little restaurant and 
I was talking to my father about uh, the challenges that I was having on the job and my thoughts of quitting. And he was kind of trying to talk me into staying. And finally I said, if I stay, I'm going to kill myself. And he said, that's it. Don't do that. Quit. Do whatever else you have to do. If you have to come home and live with us, do that. Whatever you have to do, walk away. Don't kill yourself. And that was it. And I uh, resigned very quickly after that. That's really cool that you had that, I guess, support system in place. You know, like, I think every parent's like, it's okay. You know, like, you're fine. Just keep going. And then as soon as you said that line, he took it very seriously. And that's really cool. Well, and you bring up a good point because my parents and my mother especially have been my support system for a long time. So I had some wonderful instructors in PA school and some great mentors when I started out in um, in actual practice. But the relationships and the, the communication that I had in place, I started that way in the beginning. So, you know, I still remember my first dead body. I still remember that first call, that first code. And, you know, I called my mother immediately after, you know, it was probably three o'clock in the morning and I called her and that started our regular communications throughout my career. She always could tell when I had had a bad call because I would call her and I'd start talking about something else, but eventually I would come around to this call. And my mother was equipped to hear those things. Not everybody is, um, no. but she was equipped to hear those things that she listened for years, but you have to cultivate relationships with people who can identify with what you're talking about, who can stomach what you have to talk about, and you have to have a relationship with them that goes beyond just you need to you call when you need to debrief, you know. And if you do what I did and move around a lot, it's hard to maintain those things. You know, if you're always the new girl, you're always the FNG, you're always the booter, you're always the probie, um, because you're moving around a, a lot, it's hard to maintain those relationships it's easier now with you know everybody's got a cell phone you can meet on facetime or zoom or things like that but uh the more distressed we get the more we tend to kind of close into ourselves and think that we're bothering other people with what it is that we need to get off our chest but we're not you bothering somebody by weeping or screaming or punching a hole in the wall and talking about what you need to talk about is going to bother them less than giving your eulogy. Yeah, I really, I really like that you said that you have to cultivate that relationship because you have to push for that therapist. You have to push for that type of relationship. And even if it's not in a therapy setting, like my, my catharticism comes from talking with other providers. Like, you know what I've experienced and maybe you weren't there for every call, but you understand it. Right. And that's what makes me feel better is talking to you guys um, probably more than it would be in, in a, in a, you know, clinic setting. One of the things that I really struggled with. So when I, when I left medicine, when I quit, I was unemployed and I lost my health insurance. It was the first time in my adult life because I had it with my parents growing up, I had it through the student health center when I was in college. Um, I had it through my employers because I either worked for like a county a municipality hospital, whatever. And that was part of the benefits package. I had it in pre-med school through the university and in PA school. Um, and I had it through every job. And then all of a sudden, you know, I left and my whole, you know, not my whole identity, but a big chunk of my identity was suddenly gone and I had no health insurance. So I was in pretty significant distress and I couldn't get in to see a therapist for years. I tried 
and tried and tried. And I'm sophisticated in the system and I still couldn't get help. So what I put at the end of my, my next book, what will be the epilogue of the next book, is some ideas for how to try and get in, try to get help. The worst thing to do, but it's an option if you need it, is to go to the ER. That's the worst yes. place because ER is fast medicine. Shrink medicine is slow medicine, right? Yes. The only <laughs> thing you need, especially as a provider, is to go sit in the ER, listen to all the shit you have to listen to, smell all the shit that you have to smell. It's just like your own job, you know? You can't you can't possibly get help there. But if, if you need it as a last resort, it's there. But there are other ways to get help as well. Starting with your primary care doctor, if you have one, is the best place because that's your medical home. There's nobody who supposedly knows you any better than that from a medical standpoint, and they have the resources to get you plugged in. And if they can't get you into a therapist right away, they can see you again next week and the week after that and the week after that until you're stable. Um, it may be that you don't have a primary care provider, but your kids have a pediatrician. Go take the kids in to see the pediatrician and then talk about it with them. Um, go see your dentist. Go see your eye doctor. Go see anybody who is going to recognize that you're in distress and try to get you the resources you need. If you have an EAP at your uh, your employer, the employee assistance program, it's not designed for long-term counseling, but they are designed to get you out of crisis and get you connected with the resources that you need. Um, an interesting thing that has changed over the course of me writing this next book, and it's a fairly recent change, is the institution of 988. The National Suicide Hotline has been around for a long time, and nothing pisses me off more then when I'm watching a show or a news broadcast or listening to the radio, and at the very end, they say, if you're having thoughts of, thoughts of suicide, call this number. It's like, to me, it's the equivalent of somebody saying, thank you for your service. It just feels like lip service. It doesn't mean anything. I had called it previously years ago and had a disastrous experience. It didn't help me at all. And so now my opinion has changed because the, the new 988 that's been ruled out, first of all, is easy to remember. Uh, second of all, it's better funded and people have better training. And so the experience that you get now when you call somebody is completely different than it was five and 10 years ago. And sometimes all we need is someone to just talk us down a little bit. You know, we don't need them to fix a hundred percent of what's, you know, upsetting us that night or that morning. We need them to get us 3% down, you know, or 5% down. And that's sometimes that's all it takes. And then you can live to see another morning and figure shit out the next day. Another piece of advice uh, that my sister actually gave me is if you're going to kill yourself, kill yourself in the morning. She doesn't want me to kill myself, but it's true. If you think about when you feel you're most distressed, it's probably at the end of a long day, either that you were working or that you were alone. You might be tired. You might be hungry. You might have had some alcohol or you might have smoked some pot, whatever it is, you know, and you're probably alone. It's probably nighttime. There's, you probably feel like you can't call anybody because you're going to wake them up. So that's when people tend to get in their darkest frame of mind is overnight. So if you feel that way, take my sister's advice and fight in the morning. Don't kill yourself at night. Because if you can get yourself to go to sleep, sometimes you wake up in the light of day and things are just incrementally better. Yeah. That's good advice. I've not heard that one. Um, through the various channels of people that I've interviewed on this podcast, I've gotten a list of other resources for people where they can contact. And 
you don't have to have insurance, you know, and if you don't, they will work with you and try and get you into some some free health care if it's an option, which is really good. Um, and I just keep adding to the list. You know, I keep taking if you have uh, if you have suggestions, you know, we're open to taking them. I want to make that list as big as possible for people. And it's you can tell that it's working because when I look at the insights on my website, people are clicking the links. Yeah, it's really hard to navigate that, especially if you're in distress. I mean, I finally got on, I was I was indigent enough that I got on Medicaid, but there are a lot of shrinks that won't take Medicaid. So it was, you know, people that'll do a cash pay program and things like that, but I couldn't afford it. And what was really frustrating was that a lot of the, the insurance rules and things like that are outdated and providers that used to accept a certain kind of insurance don't anymore. Nobody ever updates it. So having to do the legwork to figure out who you're going to, be able to see and feel completely overwhelming when you're already overwhelmed. But like you said, any resource that you can grab, maybe it's something from your podcast, a link that you've posted. Maybe it's something um, that you see tacked up on a telephone pole somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it's going into your primary care provider's office and just saying, I need help. You got to, you got to help me do it. I can't do it myself. I agree. I agree hundred percent. So do you have any out of whack calls that you just you wouldn't believe it if you weren't there? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> God, so many. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I don't actually dwell in that headspace a lot anymore. It's been a long time since I've been out of the field um, as evidenced by the fact that I don't know any of the protocols anymore. You know, like I come from the day <laughs> of, <a> lot. <laughs> you know, standing takedowns on the backboard for people that were, you know, walking after the rollover <laughs> You know, stuff yes. like that. Like I, you know, um, uh, so you know, I, my my knowledge base is outdated in that way, and I've done a lot of therapy and a lot of EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprogramming. Um, I've done a lot of that to sort of get the flashbacks to go away. I think what I remember more, yeah, I've had you know all of the like whatever you can think of of just bizarre and horrible and wonderful calls, you know, um, and, and same thing with with patients. But I think more often I find myself thinking about like antics in the firehouse, you know, <laughs> um, you know, good spirited stuff. Yes. Um, and one thing I was thinking about in, in preparing for this was um, the fire department that I was working for in the retirement community. It was a very, you know, it was a very traditional fire department, very sort of paramilitary uh, attitude, very uh, tied to the chain of command, very homogenous. You know, it was not a very diverse department. And you, you might be able to tell, even if you don't know me on this podcast, I'm not very good at keeping my mouth shut. So, <laughs> uh, as a booter or as a pro um, you know, I often got in trouble because I was too mouthy, too salty, too whatever, you know. But I was making it through my my probationary period, and I was in the, the biggest firehouse that had the battalion chief there. So we had an engine company, an ambulance, and a battalion chief there. And then the admin office was like right in the back parking lot. So it was finally the night that I was getting off probation and it was my turn to cook dinner. Um, in fact, I think I cooked dinner every shift for my entire probationary year, but it was my last day of probation. And I'd gotten to know the battalion chief pretty well, who was this short, wiry, old Italian guy who was like no nonsense, had a stare that would just make you wither, you know, but I'd gotten to know him a little bit. And so we finished dinner. And I think earlier in the day, somebody had dared me to start a food fight now that I was off station. <laughs> and so um, at the end of dinner, I was sitting next to the battalion chief and we had Mexican food. So we had big pots of rice, big pots of beans, you know, everything. 
And so somebody was like, okay, you're on probation, go for it. And so I picked up like a ladle of rice or something. And I looked at the battalion chief and he was like, don't do it. And so he picked <laughs> a ladle of beans, of refried beans. <laughs> and he was like, don't do it. And I just went and threw the rice at him. And so then he, then the melee ensued and the, the food fight started at that point. Everybody was throwing food around, but she threw the, the giant ladle full of refried beans at my face. And I was standing next to the wall and it splattered around my face. And when I moved away, it was like a shadow. It was like an outline of my face in refried beans on the wall. And it was the funniest thing. And then we just had this huge food fight. And of course, right after that, got toned out on all, you know, so oh, of course, <laughs> you know, refried beans in their hair and lettuce and tomatoes and onions everywhere. But it was, it was such a fun moment because, you know, I had worked so hard in that probationary year to fit in, to do all the right shit, to learn everything you got to learn, follow all the rules. Sometimes I wasn't very good at that, but then to just like, okay, you're in now, you know, that's funny. And you know, in talking like cause you and I worked a long time ago and you know i don't want to be biased but that probably was one of the best fire departments i've ever come across but probably one of my favorite stories <laughs> was when eric who's like six foot five yeah skinny as a bean pole and this was back before like you had to separate male and female rooms right so we oh, yeah. all slept in the same bunker room and eric would <laughs> so there were like three sets of of bunk beds and Eric would climb up underneath the bottom of the top bunk and hold himself there until, <laughs> until Jimmy crawled into bed. Bed. Yes. And then Jimmy would crawl into bed and they would turn the lights off and Eric would lower himself down and whisper, Jimmy, and just scare the shit out of him. Yes. Yes. That particular, the second name you mentioned there, um, he and I got in trouble together a lot. I mean, it was all good-natured stuff, but he and I got in trouble together a lot. Another call that I was thinking about, oh, this is Jerry again, too. Um, he started maybe four or five years before I did, you know, so he'd been on for a minute, but he remembers his first call with a troubled breathing call, and it was actually a dog having trouble breathing. It wasn't even a human having trouble breathing. And he got into the back of the fire truck and fully bunkered out, put his face mask on, and was actually breathing air. And the chief got in and was like, what the hell are you doing? He gets in trouble breathing call. And he was fully packed out. <laughs> it reminds me of, there was another call that I ran when I was fairly new. And this was back in the day that, you know, we, we were all volunteers at the time. And so you might respond in your POV and you might go to the station and pick up the truck, whatever it was. And sometimes in the middle of the day, there weren't a lot of people to respond to calls. But I was mm -hmm. in college at the time, so I could usually leave class and respond. And so I, we got called to a little brush fire that was along the Arroyo and nobody showed up. So I took the engine myself and drove, you know, 03 to the, to the little brush fire, whatever. And it was a tiny, <laughs> tiny little brush fire. You probably could have spit on it and put it out, but I was so <laughs> excited. And we'd been doing all these drills that I pulled the entire hand line down, the entire <laughs> three quarter hand line, all, you know, a thousand feet of it or whatever it was off the top of the truck and, you know, put it in. Uh, pump gear and all that and getting ready to like you know spray some water on this tiny fire that was almost out 
And the chief rolled up in his POV and he just grabbed the water canister off the side of the truck and put it out. And he was like, what the fuck are you doing? Now you have to load all of that back up all by yourself. Good luck. See you back at the station. <laughs> all thousand feet of inch and three quarter hand line for what he put out with a fire extinguisher. And how was that? <laughs> it was it was hot and it was heavy. And by the time I got done with it, I was very tired. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and then you still had to drive the truck back. <laughs> and then I still had to drive the truck back. And then I had homework to do after that. Oh, God. That's hilarious. It's <laughs> great. We oh, all get excited. Funny. <laughs> we do. We do get very excited. It's such a great time. So I was going to tell you too, and I don't know, I don't remember if you were there you know, one of the very first like crazy calls that I had when when I was at the fire department was actually a small plane crash. Oh, yeah. and it was in the cornfield. The guy like he had built it, yeah, and he told his family come out and watch. They yeah, come out and watch, and he took it up, and then he ended up crashing it in the cornfield across the street from his house. So his whole family watched him crash, and we had to wait three hours for OMI to show up. And so we didn't remove him from the plane until the OMI got there, which is another one of those, like the tow truck drivers, right? Talk about yep. not having anybody to talk to yeah. the OMI people who drive all over the state and then have to transport those bodies. Yeah. Um, but we helped her pull the body out and she was like, well, I have to do an assessment. Do you guys want to kind of see how this goes and like see what I get to do? And she yeah. like started at the top of his head and she was pushing on him and she pushed right here and his eyeballs were bulging out. Because he had broke both of his his uh, cheekbones, and then um, multiple, you know, extremity fractures, got down to his feet. She lifted up his feet, and his heel bones had gone through both of his the soles of his feet, which was just absolutely nuts. Yeah, right. Um, and then we helped her load him up. And thinking back on it now, like, who took the plane? You know, like, what did they do with the airplane? Yeah, it wasn't even right. something I thought about at the time. You know, but yeah, just yeah. nuts. Do you feel comfortable sharing, you know, one of your your bad experiences while you were either in the field or as a PA? I do. Okay. If you don't mind sharing, go ahead. So there's a lot to choose from. Um, you know, I've worked in so many uh, kind of different areas and different places that there are a lot of terrible calls in my head and, and a lot of good things too. But there's one that, um, you know, one of those that will just forever stick with me. And I think it's something that would bother anybody, but there's you know, a particular aspect to it that bothered me the most, but I was working as a paramedic up in a resort town up in the Rockies. And it was a, a town that my family had vacationed in a lot. And so I had been going there since I was literally in the womb. And so it was a town that I knew fairly well, even though I had not lived there or worked there before. So I didn't know a lot of people. I just knew the place and it was a very special place to me and hadn't been working there that long. And we got called to a baby having a seizure. And I hate working on kids anyway. They're just, they're not in my comfort zone. They never have been. It's part of why I don't have children. So I've just seen too many bad things with kids and I just don't like treating kids. This particular call was for uh, a kid having a seizure and um, the name of the road was the same as my name. And so that stuck out to me. And uh, the baby was fine when we got there. So whatever seizure that they had had, whatever stictal period they had had, had passed. Um, but we took him to the hospital and, you know, whatever little workup they did in the ER, the kid was fine. So it was like, well, you know, did they really have a seizure or not? There's a caregiver caring for it. It, was, it wasn't the, the parent. So maybe, you know, maybe it wasn't a seizure. So they discharged the kid. And then a few hours later, we go back to the same address. 
And of course it sticks out in my head because it's again, you know, my name on the street. And so we go there again. And this time the kid is fully seizing. And by the time I am able to do anything for them, the seizure breaks and they're, they're post-tectal. And so I'm working on an airway and all kinds of stuff. And we were very close to the hospital. So it was kind of a scoop and go situation, you know? Um, and it's just me and my partner. There was no time for the fire department or police officer or anybody else to get there, you know? And so we go into the ER and this time, you know, they know that they're going to have to keep the kid and they, um, get a line started and they, they're giving them anti-seizure medications and stuff like that. And I'm still at the hospital doing paperwork and whatever in the ER. And it's probably been an hour or so. And then I hear the mother screaming. And so everybody goes back. It's a tiny little ER in a, a community, you know, a critical access hospital. So everybody goes running back into this ER bay and the kid is seizing again. And so it turns out that the, the caregiver had probably shaken the baby. So it was a shaken baby syndrome kind of thing. And so they wanted to take the baby to a bigger facility. So I was encouraging them to, them to fly the kid. It was a three hour, at least three hour on a good day in the daylight trip. Um, it was coming into dusk, you know, um, the round trip for us to, to make that that journey was almost eight hours by the time you drove up, dropped off the patient, gave report, finished your paperwork and come home. So I was encouraging them to fly the patient and they didn't do a lot of that in this particular community. So eventually I convinced the hospital to fly the patient and um, they were doing so by fixed wing. So we took the patient, this is now my fourth encounter with the patient during the day. We take the patient and the mother to the airport, which is, you know, 15, 20 minutes north of town. So our aircraft arrives uh, from a different base that was down the, the mountain. The pilot, it turns out, lived in this little mountain community. So he called his wife and said, hey, I'm, I'm coming to pick up a patient. Why don't you come stay high? So she came out. So, you know, they, they shut down. We pull up next to the aircraft. The pilot goes over and talks to his wife by the hangar. And there were a nurse and a paramedic on board. And the paramedic took the mother and got her onto the aircraft and got her belted in and was kind of explaining to her what things were going to look like and things like that. And the nurse stayed in the ambulance with me and took report. And I had never met this guy before, but he instantly struck me as an amazing human being. And when I had opened the back door of the ambulance, I shook hands with all three people. I shook hands with the pilot, shook hands with the paramedic, and I shook hands with the nurse. The nurse and I sat on the bench together talking about this patient who was by this point intubated and paralyzed and, and all of that, you know, and we talked for a while and, you know, we, we get the, the patient into the plane, the nurse gets back up in the plane. I shake his hand again, you know, and just like, thank you for, for being here. And, you know, especially cause this, this stuff makes me really uncomfortable. So I'm glad you guys are here. And then the pilot says, you know, kisses his wife goodbye, that kind of thing. My partner had already moved the ambulance um, back out of the way of where the aircraft was. And I was standing on the tarmac, just me and the pilot. He was standing at the foot of the stairs and he looked at me and he said, it's a great night for flying. And he shut the door. My partner and I rode back to our base. And this was the kind of thing that I was on call from home. So I, we drove back to the base, got the rig back in service, and then I went home. And a couple of hours later, I got a call from my supervisor asking if they knew which hospital they were going to. And he said, your, your plane never arrived. Are you sure that they were going to the right hospital? Are you sure they were going to this airport? And I was like, yeah, of course I'm sure. It was all over the paperwork. We talked about it. Of course they knew where they were going. And it turns out that right after they took off, 
They crashed about five miles east of the airport in what's called Devil's Canyon, which is extremely rough terrain. Um, but we didn't know that until the next morning. So all we knew was that they never arrived. And of course, everybody then in the whole region became part of the search party. Every air, every helicopter that was around, from state police to medical helicopters, everybody was up. Every unit on the ground was out. Um, we were all searching. And finally, somebody spotted um, the crash site. And one of our supervisors was able to take a four-wheel drive vehicle up into this very, very steep, very rugged canyon. And then he had to walk probably the last 500 yards, just basically following the smell of aviation fuel and burnt vegetation and finally came upon it. And he just, on the radio, basically told us every time he encountered one of the five people, the pilot, the nurse, the paramedic, the mother, and the baby were all dead. And it was devastating for all of us. It was especially devastating for me because I had been the one to push to fly with patient, you know. Um, but what I took from that was that every encounter that we have can be impactful. And what I remember is sitting with that nurse in the back of the ambulance, just having this easy handoff and shaking his hand. And from that moment forward, every patient I encountered, every op on a scene, every, you know, EMT in the back of an ambulance that I, you know, got on as the as the intercept medic, whatever, I always, always shook hands. Every single time every single patient and if i hadn't with that nurse and that pilot and that paramedic it would have been the last time i saw them and all i would think was i should have shaken their hand wow that's a tough one and i'm glad that you've been able to take something so positive out of that traumatic event you know and working on the flight side now you know you just you never know so did they not realize that the plane had gone down prior to the morning? Like you're saying the supervisor didn't this call was you. right at the beginning of flight follow. And so there really wasn't a sophisticated flight follow at the time. Um, and they knew that there was a problem, but I think everybody was kind of hoping for the best. And so they were calling, you know, they were calling every airport. They, they called, you know, every other trauma center airport, you know, everything like that. And they even sent state police officers and sheriff's deputies to every little airport that's unmanned, you know, that doesn't have a tower mm-hmm. all over the state, anywhere that was along that flight path. They sent anybody to look at any little path that could be a runway. And this is all at night, you know. So yeah. then in the morning, they were able to find it. And I don't know if they ever took it out because I don't know how you would get it out, you know. Right. There are, you know, well, I'm still sure be you've been here. They have a plane up here in, in the Sandias. Yeah, that... TWA Canyon. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So they probably yeah. did leave it. That's insane, though. Man, what a story. Oof, that one's rough. I'm so sorry, dude. It doesn't hurt as much now as it did, you know, and that's the thing is that time tends to lessen things. But I also did a lot of work, you know, with my therapist and with writing. You know, that's one of the ones that it's not in this book, but it's the story that I've written about, you know. For a long time, I kept the newspaper clippings about it because it was in the news for a long time after that. And then I, you know, we eventually got to the point where I could get rid of those, you know. Yeah, we like to, we like to torture ourselves, you know. We do, yeah. We like to go down those, you know, those rabbit holes and, and sort of pull out, even metaphorically, all the newspaper clippings of the things that you've seen. But it's okay to do that every once in a while, but you have to have a way to get yourself out of that. Yeah. Especially if you're, you've been drinking or you've been imbibing in something else, you're alone it's nighttime 
you got to have a plan for how long you're going to think about that stuff or look at that stuff. Maybe even set an alarm and then just go change the scene, you know, get in the bathtub, go out to the garden, go take a walk, go for a run, whatever it is. You got to get yourself out of that and be away for another day. Right. You know how um, AA meetings have their like, I don't even, a mentor, I guess. They have the mentors and you can call the mentor like anytime. That's kind of how I think we should look at it in EMS also or in the, in the medical system at all. You know, again, it goes back to we are brothers keepers. So we need to make sure that the people that we surround ourselves with, whether it's the fire department, the cops, the tow truck drivers, the, you know, the fast food workers, we need to make sure that we're doing okay. And it's up to us to, to be checking on our fellow people. You and know? in a good system, that's what your supervisor's for. That's what your senior partner is for. That's what, you know, maybe your human resources person is for. We don't necessarily have the culture set up to allow people to access that without fear of of punishment or right. fear of being lost the truck or something like that, you know? Um, and that's, that's true in medicine as well. There are a lot of physicians that want to seek care because when you re-up your license, you have to state whether or not you have any of these, you know, mental illnesses. And if you've got that in your, you know, diagnosis in your chart, people are afraid that they're going to lose their license, you know, and that's the exact opposite way that we should be looking at it. We all have terrible ways to deal with things like binge eating, binge drinking, being violent, driving too fast, uh, shooting your guns up into the air, whatever it is, we all have ways of dealing with stuff that are not healthy. The trick is trying to establish habits early that are healthy and maintain them throughout your career. And if you've forgotten what you used to do in the beginning, go back and do it again. You know, if you used to take a walk or if you like to take dance classes or you like to study martial arts or you like to play music and you find yourself not picking up your guitar not going to the, the dance studio, whatever it is, you got to try and go back and, and get those things again, you know, and pull yourself out of that, that rut. That's the only way to do it is to rely on the good practices that you started in the beginning and the people that you've cultivated the relationships with around you. Yes. Well, Robin, amazing, amazing conversation. I was looking forward to talking to you because I hadn't talked to you in so long. So you've blown it out of the park today. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a lot of fun. And I'm really, I have a lot of respect for what you're doing. I have a lot of respect for the people that are tuning in and the people that are contributing. The discussions that are happening are um, beautiful and supportive and frank, you know, and we need that. So um, there should be more Samantha Brawleys in the world. (laughs) <laughs> Thanks. Well, I appreciate it. And I look forward to uh, A, getting your first book and B, reading your second book. If anybody wants the book, you can get it from North Dakota State University Press, which is the publisher. You can just go on ndsupress.org um, and look at their, their sales page and you can find it there. You can buy it on Amazon if you want to give Jeff Bezos your money or <laughs> on my Robin Beale author Facebook page. Um, you can Venmo me and I can send you an autographed copy if people just give me their address. Um, I add a little bit of extra money on there for shipping, but I'd love for folks to read it. And I hope that people find it familiar. Um, They'll find it dark and heavy, but I hope in the end, they find it reassuring and uplifting. Awesome. Um, Send me that information and I'll throw it up on my webpage so that people can have a a good access. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yes. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening. Before we wrap up, we have a few important announcements to share with you. 
Firstly, we're excited to announce the launch of our brand new 911 Nonsense Facebook group page. It's a community where everyone can go to connect, share ideas, discuss topics from the show, and get all of the most recent updates about the podcast. We'd love to have you join us and be part of the conversation. Next, we want to ask you to rate and review our podcast on your preferred platform. Your feedback means the world to us and helps us reach a wider audience. By rating and reviewing the show, you'll be supporting us in a big way and helping others discover 911 nonsense. If you enjoy what we do and would like to support the podcast even further, we have a few options available. You can visit samspursuit.com to find the links to our 911 nonsense merch page and our recently released noon gear page. Every contribution, no matter the size, goes a long way in helping us continue to better the podcast. We know that not everyone is comfortable being on the podcast, but we still want to hear your stories and experiences. If you have a compelling story and would like to share it to be read by me in a future episode, please reach out to us via email at 911nonsense at gmail.com or through our website's contact section. If you choose to be anonymous, we'll make sure to respect your privacy while sharing your story in a way that resonates with our audience. Thank you again for tuning in. We truly appreciate your support and look forward to bringing you more engaging content in the future. See you next week.